It's The World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us from London, Nico Hines, world editor of uh, The Daily Beast. How are you? I'm well. Good evening. Good evening. We should warn you, Nico. I know you're a big Arsenal fan. In the interest of balance, we've also invited from Newcastle, Judah Grunstein, editor-in-chief of World Politics Review. The two teams play each other this weekend. Uh, how are you feeling, Judah? Feeling good. Newcastle's been scoring a lot of goals lately. <laughs> All right. With us here in the studio, uh, two neutral parties to this fight. Uh, Chiara Piotto, Paris correspondent for Sky TG24. Good evening. Good Very neutral. Very neutral. Okay, good <laughs> to see you. And Ana Navarro Pedro, Paris correspondent for Visao and other Portuguese publications. How are you? Very well, and you? All right. Uh, you can listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. Four weeks after Hamas's shock rampage, Israel's military says it's got Gaza City surrounded. But at what cost? The Palestinian territory's largest refugee camp bombed twice in two days this week. Dozens killed. And with each day that passes, the world is fed tales of horror and despair. Our house was bombed. We moved from one place to another. All the while, rockets flew above our heads and we braced for death. It was a very tough road. There is absolutely nowhere safe in Gaza. And uh, we have breaking news uh, in the last hour. Uh, the French president, Anna Navarro-Pedro, who's going to uh, be holding a humanitarian conference on November 9th, uh, and, you know, again, calling for uh, the respect of uh, civilian lives because the French Institute was bombed uh, in Gaza mm -hmm. the, the, this Friday. Uh, nobody injured there. But it, it still, there, you feel with each day that passes that uh, uh, the, the, these calls to, uh, to save civilians are growing louder and louder. They're growing louder and louder because um, uh, the two... The two main powers, the, the only two powers who decide whether that uh, conference will mean anything or, or nothing, uh, which are the United States and Israel, um, they, and they are losing the public relations war, if you want, um, worldwide. Uh, the, the, the image, their image in this confrontation with Hamas and the, the bombing of civilians in Gaza uh, is deteriorating both the image of both countries. Israel doesn't seem, or Israeli authorities don't seem to put that as a priority. But uh, in the United States, they have elections coming up, and in the Democratic uh, par um, Party, which is the party in power in the White House, President Joe Biden is a Democrat, uh, they are probably watching it very carefully. So we, we shifted from the first visit of Blinken to Gaza, to Israel, uh, saying, really uh, defending the idea of putting 2.3 million uh, Palestinians in the Sinai Desert in uh, Egypt. It's not what he said. No, that's not what he said. That's, but, but all the people who, uh, he was defending this idea in the, in the Middle East and seeing if it would take or not. Uh, and now to this last position of being a humanitarian interest and humanitarian care uh, for uh, Gazaouis. Well, let's talk about the U.S. Secretary of State returning to Israel this Friday, fourth trip in four weeks, uh, just as the Biden administration dials up calls for the Israelis to respect international law. Um, here was the answer that uh, Anthony Blinken got from Israel's president when he landed. 
which we are sending by over 1,200,000 leaflets to the citizens of Gaza. We've carried out 6 million text messages and 4 million phone calls to the citizens of Gaza according to the rules of international law where we alerted the citizens in advance, including before the Jabalia attack. He didn't address directly whether he was convinced, Anthony Blinken, at the press conference uh, later uh, by, by, by that uh, display of show and tell by uh, Israel's president. But again, your thoughts on the public relations war. I think for sure what we are seeing currently is a war that is not just on the ground, but evidently it's also a communication war, as Anna was saying correctly, I think. So we see the states trying to be the negotiator in this uh, situation, finding um, as much as possible an agreement from the Occidental side and also trying not to go too much against any sensibility in the field. But of course, it's very complicated in this moment. I've never seen such a polarizing conflict in the recent years. Uh, we have so many sensibilities at stake in this situation, and even the states play a very sensible role. I find that this visit from Blinken is very meaningful in the way that it happens so frequently. I mean, it, the states are so present on the ground, and at the same time, they try not to say too much. They try not to expose too much their positions, and probably playing more a background role on the public scene, just saying, okay, we need a humanitarian uh, pose on the ground, we need to protect civilians, we need to protect um, something that is becoming evident in front of the eyes of everybody. I mean, these people that are dying in Gaza are something that cannot be hidden anymore in the front of the public opinion. So this is something that cannot be uh, mm. hidden. Well, yeah. let's listen to Anthony Blinken. Uh, he uh, voiced his concerns loud and clear over Gaza's mounting civilian death toll. We need to do more to protect Palestinian civilians. We've been clear that as Israel conducts its campaign to defeat Hamas, how it does so matters. It matters because it's the right and lawful thing to do. It matters because failure to do so plays into the hands of Hamas and other terror groups. Judah Grunstein, uh, can that message get through so long as Benjamin Netanyahu remains uh, prime minister of Israel? Netanyahu, who has not exactly worked hard uh, for a two-state solution and peace with the Palestinians. Well, I think there are a couple of things going on. Um, the, the, the first is that um, despite the fact that Netanyahu um, and the Israeli president both kind of denied any intention to pause uh, the, the bombardments and the attack, um, you know, that's negotiating through the press in some ways. And there's no real way of knowing where negotiations on hostage releases are, what the Israeli position is behind closed doors. Um, I did see one description, uh, I think even, I think it was Blinken who said that he passed a message to the Israelis that only a friend could pass. Uh, which suggest, suggests to me that, again, in those closed-door meetings, the U.S. position might be... But is that uh, enough? Is that enough, Judah, when you hear the way Anna talks about how, with each passing day, Israel and the United States lose credibility in the international community's eyes? Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, this is, the, this is the third major round of fighting between Hamas and Israel in the past 15 years or so. Um, 
Each time it's been just as polarizing. The difference this time is that both the initial Hamas attack and the Israeli response have been so uh, such greater in scale. Um, and so that polarization uh, and, and the mobilization of public opinion is greater. Um, I think that for, for a very simple reason, uh, it's, it's unlikely that Israel uh, will do anything more than, than short pauses in its attack. And that just really has to do with the logic of war. Uh, just less than three weeks ago, uh, Netanyahu very explicitly stated that Israel, Israel's war goals are total. Uh, they are aiming to eradicate Hamas. Uh, so doing, uh, so stopping this, uh, this attack anywhere short of that in a semi-permanent way uh, to then, what, uh, engage in negotiations with Hamas, um, it just, it, it would be tantamount to, to a Hamas victory. Um, and I think the other, the other thing that um, it, on, a, on a smaller political level, uh, I don't think Netanyahu will su survive more than a few days after the fighting stops in this war. Um, and he's someone who above all thinks only of his political survival. So that's a really problematic person to have in charge of the Israeli war effort right now. So in answer to your question, will it be enough to stop the fighting? Possibly they'll get a, a humanitarian pause to deliver some aid and, and respite to the civilian population um, in return for maybe not all of the hostages, but some of them. Uh, but I don't think that realistically, despite all the costs in public opinion and reputation for the US and Israel, uh, we're, we're likely to see a, a, a permanent or semi-permanent ceasefire uh, and negotiations. That seems very unrealistic to me at this time. Nico Hines, in the last minutes, uh, Israel's military confirming that it did hit uh, a convoy of ambulances in the Gaza Strip, but claiming that those ambulances were being used uh, by Hamas. If you're for one side, you'll believe one story. If you're for the other, you'll believe another. Yeah, well, I think my uh, position on this is, is pretty clear, which is don't believe a word either of the sides say, um, which doesn't leave us with very many places to go, unfortunately. Um, what we're having to rely on, you know, as we're trying to cover this is, you know, eyewitnesses on the ground and um, trying to speak to as many people who don't have a dog in the fight, who are actually on the ground witnessing these events, um, has been the, the only real way to try and get to some answers. But that's incredibly difficult, you know. Uh, one of the people that um, is working for the Daily Beast, I spoke to on Monday and then didn't hear from for four long days this week and finally heard back again today uh, just because the internet's down, there's no electricity, there's no power. You know, it, the conditions are so, so difficult to try and report this and really we cannot believe a word either of these people says. And going back to the Blinken, um, you know, uh, performance earlier on today, we can't really believe what he's saying either. You know, has he gone, has he made that statement that Israel has to be um, more careful about civilian deaths in public? And then has he then gone behind the scenes and shouted and ranted and raved and said that the US was going to pull support unless they improved the situation for civilians? Or has he gone behind closed doors and said, don't worry, I had to say that for PR reasons around the world. We've got your back. You carry on doing what you're doing. We just we just don't know. We can't believe anyone. Uh, you heard uh, Chiara saying uh, that uh, uh, actually it is a good thing that he's going. Uh, we're, we're hearing 
uh, Nico Hines, uh, that uh, Jordan is now saying that uh, uh, on Saturday, Blinken in uh, the capital, Amman, will be meeting uh, with his counterparts from the UAE, Qatar, Egypt, uh, along with the Palestinians. Uh, so there is stuff happening. Yeah, I, I do think it's positive that Blinken is there. Um, as I say, we can't quite trust um, what he's saying behind the scenes to, to the Israelis. But I think it's really, really important that there is this kind of yo-yo diplomacy where he goes and talks to the Palestinians, talks to the Jordanians. And, you know, the Qataris seem to be setting themselves up as kind of potential negotiators in this um, and going back and forth and Blinken can then go back and talk to the Israelis again because ultimately we're going to have to come up with some sort of way out of this mess. I, I do agree um, that the problem is that Netanyahu has painted himself into such a corner that without the total eradication of Hamas, which is potentially an impossibility, um, that he's going to have to ultimately admit that he's been defeated. So the the, the pathway to a kind of ceasefire or some sort of um, ultimate peace agreement is incredibly treacherous. Um, however, we've got to try and start making those steps towards that pathway as soon as possible because the number of people that are dying is just absolutely unacceptable. It looks like, well, again, we're not sure of these figures, but the Hamas-led um, Ministry of Health in Gaza is saying that 3,760 children have been killed already. And this has only been going on for a few weeks. This could go on for months longer. And if it continues at that rate, this is just an unimaginable slaughter. All right. For the first time uh, since October the 7th, uh, we've been hearing from another precinct this Friday. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah, the much-hyped Friday speech, uh, which was broadcast in Beirut and around the world, uh, spoke of battle. Those were his words that have been going on since October the 8th. Not war. He didn't use the word war. But he did get, issue a lot of warnings to Israel and its main backer, the United States. Your fleets in the Mediterranean did not scare us and will not scare us in the future. And I tell you with all honesty that those fleets that you're threatening us with, we've prepared options for them. Okay, he didn't scale it up, uh, Ana Navarro Pedro, but it's uh, scaled up enough as it is. Hezbollah, which, uh, according to its own figures, has lost 54 fighters mm -hmm. in, the, in, in the last uh, four weeks. It really wouldn't take much for the escalation to go much further. It wouldn't, and that's the problem. By, you know, just by uh, going down a, a slope. Uh, it was interesting, his uh, speech, because it was a, a speech directed in this communications war as well uh, in the world. He didn't speak about, uh, uh, he didn't threat to, to bring war into Israel or against the United States. He said they shouldn't do it, we should have a cease. It wasn't a word, but he said should have a, a ceasefire in, uh, in Gaza, we'll stop this thing in Gaza. Um, so it's something that will resonate with the people who are demonstrating in the world uh, for Gazaways, for Palestinians. And it was also very political because his country, Lebanon, is uh, in a very poor shape. And no one in Lebanon, I think there was a, um, a poll recently, 70% said that they don't want a war with Israel, having war coming So you them. felt as though part of what he was saying was indeed directed towards the domestic audience. This wasn't a part speech was, written part, from part, Tehran. It was not just directed, it was taking into account politically, taking 
taking into account the position of Lebanon. And secondly, he was taking into account world public opinion as well. It was interesting in that sense. Um, but of course, if things go south, uh, they are ready to battle. And it's true. They are no longer afraid of armies of Israel, neither the United States. Right. That has changed in the world. And as Chiara was saying earlier, when it erupts in the Middle East, it gets toxic in a hurry uh, elsewhere. Here in France in particular, the latest on that, Stars of David spray painted on buildings around Paris. In one instance, a 33-year-old man and a 29-year-old woman were picked up last Friday. More Stars of David have since appeared in the French capital. Uh, about those two arrests, um, the, they were Moldovans. Uh, and uh, according to uh, radio station Europe 1, uh, the prosecutors said that they uh, claimed that they were operating under orders from, quote, an in in individual in Russia. Uh, I don't know if that adds clarity or makes it more confusing, the story. Well, if not something else, certainly proves that, as the Hezbollah leader said, it is already a battle that is worldwide. I mean, even if the conflict, militarily speaking, is staying restricted in the same area, ge geographically speaking, what we are witnessing in the last weeks is something of a worldwide battle in terms of communication, in terms of... Um, really like exporting the conflict in other ways in societies all over the world. And I'm now speaking of France. Since the beginning of this conflict, French authorities have been saying we have to be very careful not to import in France the conflict. And actually this is happening already in terms of separation inside the society. This is a very polarizing subject, as I was saying before. So there are pro-Palestine, pro-Israel people rallying in the streets every week. Not only that, and not only in France, we know it's happening all over Europe. But the rising of anti-Semitism is something that should be considered as extremely worrying because it's linked directly to what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, we've been seeing an enormous quantity in France and elsewhere in Europe of anti-Semite incidents. And you heard Judah earlier talking about yeah. how what's different with this war is the scale of the fighting is bigger. So is the scale of the Islamophobia and the anti-Semitism also bigger? Absolutely. And also the fact that today the leader of Hezbollah said uh, all the Arabic countries should not help Israel anymore selling gas, selling oil, proves once again that the appeal to war is not just military, but it's also linked to energy, to economy, to society, to culture. So to come back to your first question, the fact that Russia might be implicated in the uh, Toile de David. Of course, these are two suspects no, claiming. might be theoretically, according to their idea, etc. Wouldn't even be so uh, strange. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be far-fetched, Judah Grunstein? Well, I mean, you know, there is this narrative that, that Russia is always um, taking advantage of uh, crises worldwide to, to sort of instill an instability in Western countries. Of course, and, it, it, and it, like that. It, 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 there was a boomerang effect this week what, with uh, the overrunning of the, the tarmac uh, at Dagestan's uh, uh, capital. There were uh, protesters who didn't want uh, people from Israel to get off a, a flight that was in transit. Yeah, which, of course, uh, Putin uh, just blamed on the West and said that it was imported, imported or, or organized by the West or by Western countries or outside powers. Um, so I don't think he, he'll be that that bothered by that. Um, uh, the, the thing is that uh, the, the thing about this conflict, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in general, 
including when it's in the West Bank, uh, or in particular with Hamas in Gaza, there, there, are, there are certain states that are particularly vulnerable and susceptible to, to spillover and fallout from this conflict. One we talked about already, Lebanon, where there are a, a, a huge Palestinian population in refugee camps. Another is Jordan, for obvious reasons. Again, another a, a huge Palestinian population. Um, and, and further out in a, in a broader circle, France is particularly and always has been uh, very susceptible to this crisis. It's got the, the largest Jewish population outside of Israel and the United States. Um, and it has a, a, a very large Arab and Muslim population um, that, again, without getting essentialist, uh, is often um, responds uh, with great sympathy to the Palestinian cause. And we've seen that in some of the, the in the protests and demonstrations that were allowed. Um, so, again, this is not unprecedented. I remember uh, one case, I believe it was in the 2014 conflict when there were riots on Rue de Rosier uh, that targeted uh, Jewish synagogues and, and shopkeepers there. Um, uh, so, uh, or if not Rue de Rosier uh, in that neighborhood. Um, and and so, uh, so again, it's not unprecedented, this, this kind of spillover in France. Um, and the French state obviously takes it very, very seriously, which I think is is important and, and necessary and valuable. Um, but that also that also explains why uh, Emmanuel Macron is so moto- motivated and mobilized both to to try to uh, to seem as even handed as possible and to play a role and to 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 try and see this conflict uh, tamp down because uh, again, France is particularly vulnerable to some spillover. We we have we've seen uh, Anavar Pedro a bit of a pivot on the part of the French government. At the beginning of the the, the conflict, uh, pro-Palestine demonstrations were there was they tried to issue a blanket ban. Yes. Uh, the courts ruled uh, uh, over over overruled that. in terms and, of law. And, and now you have. Again, uh, the, the president calling for a humanitarian conference to help the Palestinians. Yes, which means they, their sense of uh, international relations, of geopolitics, and of politics, it's not very developed in some par- in, for, for some members of the government. And there is something else on this. Um, um, David Starr's painted on certain uh, homes in France that is a pity that the French authorities have closed the investigation into the case. They've expelled the two Moldovans. Uh, First, they said that they had been paid by someone in Eastern Europe. Then a French radio said it was someone from Russia. But the question is, because I I inquired, and apparently those those stars were really hitting on um, targeting uh, Jewish homes, and my question is, how if they if it was done like this, how did they have those addresses? And uh, so it was part of an investigation that should have been made. And stopping it now at mm. this point, it's really weird. Mm. It, it's been toxic in France. It's been toxic elsewhere. We talked about some of the other countries over in the United States. Uh, Israel's war with Gaza. Uh, sparking uh, uh, bitterness that's out in the open. Activists this week interrupting the U.S. Secretary of State's hearing before a uh, congressional panel Tuesday before being removed one by one uh, from the room. Uh, While Jewish students at New York's Columbia University staged a press conference the next day to say they have been threatened, feel scared, and feel as though the university is not doing enough uh, to, to protect them. Uh, Nico Hines, th- these kinds of uh, bitter divisions. First off, 
How much have you seen them where you are in, in, in the UK? Yeah, I think we've had the same problems uh, in the UK where this particular incident... I think, I think the, the important thing to, to remember about this uh, October 7th attack is that it, it was more horrific and shocking and appalling than anything we had seen before for, you know, for, for the his, throughout the history of um, Israel's existence. And I think in the same way that 9-11 completely changed the way America reacted to anything, blew logic out the window and they were suddenly invading random countries around the world for the next 10 years. Um, I think the, the logic has also been blown out by what happened on October the 7th. And so although there have been these simmering disagreements between pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian um, sides of the debate over the last you know, 50, 60, 70 years, um, the scale of the atrocities in this, in this instance made people on the Israeli side in, 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 in the first instance so upset and so angry that they thought everybody would rally but, around, but, but again, the, Nico, rally around them. The, the, just talking about the domestic politics side of it, you heard Anna Navarro-Pedro talking about how this could bleed into the uh, U.S. elections campaign next year. Britain also has an election next year. And like in France, like in the U.S., it's the left, it seems, that's tearing itself apart. Yeah, that, that's, that is true. And for some reason in, in the British media, um, this kind of extreme global event has become a test for the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, who is... Um, being sort of put on trial and is supposed to prove his uh, credentials, which, of course, you have to see in the context of Jeremy Corbyn being the previous Labour leader who was a known um, sympathiser with the Palestinian cause um, and therefore which led, therefore, to lots of accusations of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party um, because some of the anti-war protest movement, which was aligned with Jeremy Corbyn, uh, remained in the party and... Some of that had been associated with anti-Semitic elements. It's a very complicated story. I'm trying to gloss over here. But um, the, the, the main thing is that the pressure at the moment is not on Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, to prove that he's doing anything or to, to see, is he doing the right thing? Is he representing Britain in the right way? Instead, it's become a kind of domestic, internal political row. And al although, frankly, I think um, it's wishful thinking on the part of both the right-wing media and Keir Starmer's left-wing critics to think that actually what he does is going to have a, a huge impact on next year's election. Carapilto, in, in your native Italy, is, 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 are we seeing the same kind of rumblings inside the, the political uh, landscape? I would, yeah, definitely. We shall all remember that next year we're also voting in Europe for European elections. So all European countries are currently in... Uh, yeah, in search of a position over the important matters and important matters to Italians are also security, for example. So it's not so much the, um, the communication over what's really happening in the conflict uh, in Middle East that is dividing the political opinion, but the consequences of it. I'm talking of security because as we did in France, we connected somehow the, the call of Hamas to Muslims in the world to attack um, individually in their own countries um, 
led, as we know in France, to a, to a generalized fear that also happened in, in Italy and led also politicians to saying openly to people that we should all be more careful about attenta- um, attacks, terrorist attacks in Europe as a consequence of what's happening in the Middle East. And this is, of course, one of the main subjects for the right uh, for the next elections in, the, in Europe. And we know in Italy we have a government from the right with Giorgia Meloni being at the head of it. And this whole discussion around security, uh, illegal immigration, terrorist risks in Europe is something very, very important to their audience. So in a sense, indirectly, uh, yes, it is dividing also the political scene. All right. And there are other big stories uh, out there. Uh, We've not mentioned, for instance, the war in Ukraine that continues. Uh, We've not mentioned uh, some of the other big stories that are taking place around the globe. Uh, Perhaps uh, we should say, you know, we talked about double standards. The whole world watched the big strike at U.S. automakers because of the Middle East. How much have we watched the unprecedented walkout by uh, garment workers in Bangladesh? After all, it's a long shot that any of our panelists own a Mustang or a Corvette. But it's pretty fair to assume that some of the clothes we're all wearing were made by some of those walking picket lines. After working for 10 years, my salary is still at $96. If I add my attendance bonus, it goes up to 100. How can I survive with a wife and a child with this inflation? I need to get a loan every month, as my salary isn't enough to feed my family. We make expensive clothes. The clothes then get sold at higher prices when they're exported overseas. The factory owners make good money, but our wages don't increase according to the money they make. What's the problem with the owners paying us higher wages if they can sell the clothes at higher prices? Uh, Judah Grunstein, uh, the uh, fast fashion that uh, we wear, uh, here we're talking about people whose uh, minimum wage is $75 a month and they want it raised to $205 a month. Yeah, well, I think that um, the, the in, in the past few years, the 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 discussion about globalization uh, has really shifted quite a bit. Um, and now we're talking about de-risking and, and uh, friend-shoring and near-shoring and the ways in which globalization is being restructured, very much from a geopolitical perspective, competition with China, um, things like that. Um, and it ignores the way in which this, what's happening now in Bangladesh, was really the major discussion around uh, the, the major critique for of uh, if you if you want uh, of globalization, even during its golden age, right when when it was going to uh, lead the world out uh, the developing economies of the world out of out of poverty, um, and it it did have a very positive uh, effect in a lot of places, uh, but th- these particular workers and others like them in other parts of the world. Uh, were the ones that were really left behind. Uh, we talk about the left behind voters in the U.S. or in Europe who, who lost jobs to globalization and their resentment. Um, but these, the, these particular workers in Bangladesh and, and elsewhere were the ones who were supposed to have benefited from globalization, and they didn't. And we've seen that um, in, in, in uh, the interviews there. Uh, the, the sad part is that right now, uh, because of the pressure that globalization and globalized supply chains are under, 
um, it's it's they, they might have missed their moment in a certain in a certain way, um, and so uh, it it means that um, we're looking and and again Bangladesh is a country that's undergone or experienced quite a bit of political instability um, recently uh, and democratic erosion. Um, so it, at the same time that we we've seen all these conflicts and wars around the world, uh, there's still these fundamental economic inequalities and injustices that are also going to be destabilizing uh, countries around the world uh, in the coming years because of the ways in which opportunities of globalization will be shifting to other countries and, and, and restructured. The fact is, is that us sitting in this studio, we're the consumers, we're not the makers of these garments. Right. And, uh, the, and we don't benefit neither from very low prices because the, what they are paid for, uh, their work, and, uh, and the prices that are basically more or less the same according to categories of uh, garments, uh, you can see that it's almost like an oligopoly that, uh, that sets prices more or less the same. It's very interesting to see that. Uh, you can't tell me that, uh, sorry if I'm going to say two brands, but Adidas or Nike who sell very expensive shoes made in Bangladesh, you don't tell me that the margin uh, uh, benefits uh, that, that, that the low price paid to the makers benefits the consumer neither. But of course we have a responsibility. Uh, we are buying so many clothes all the time, so we do have a responsibility. But the main responsibility goes with those brands. And they are just shoving water from their uh, you know, shoulders saying, oh, they should be paid more. Okay, pay more than the makers maybe, I don't know. But remember one thing in China, when China started being the manufacturer of the world, there were so many social protests, violent as well down there, even if it is just as tough a dictatorship. And uh, for people trying to get, you know, more dignity and a more fair pay for their work. So uh, I just say they are brave and I really admire them. Uh, Nico Hines, uh, uh, we've heard that Levi's and H&M, Anna didn't want to name brands, I just did, uh, they say it's going to be affecting uh, their production in Bangladesh. What a Peter. Well, good. That's the whole point of these strikes, <laughs> right? It, it should impact uh, the supply chains and maybe that will make the suppliers think twice. You know, that's ultimately what we need. What we need is some kind of gold standard uh, accepted, you know, like we have the kind of free trade for certain coffees or chocolate or um, there needs to be some sort of equivalent badge mm. that some kind of um, institution can can stick onto certain labels and say, hey, if you buy these jeans, then it's fair trade work. And if you buy these jeans, it's not. And these ones may be a few pounds more, but you could make that decision. Because at the moment for the consumer, it's actually really hard to figure out, apart from assuming that everything you buy is made by virtual slave labor, which is probably a fairly safe assumption. But we're not actually given that opportunity to really decide between, you know, if, if one of Adidas and Nike decided to become um, the company that made sure its workers were paid more, then perhaps that, you know, they would benefit and they would sell more. I think what we need to keep an eye on is what happens next after these strikes. There were a big round of strikes in 2019 in Bangladesh and people were demanding an increase in their wages. They're still being paid about the same. And as soon as the strikes were finished, as soon as the news stories died down, the company that runs all of these, or rather the trade organization that runs all these factories, sacked between five and 7,000 mm. people for going on strike. 
And and that's probably what's going to happen again today. So I echo the the, the respect for the bravery of what these people are doing, and um, we've got to try and shine a light on this as as much as we can. What I would like to add on this top on this topic is that normally analysts writing about this topic say uh, the answer lies with the new generations, and the, there's there are few things as contradictive as uh, new generations on this matter because they, on the one hand they really care a lot about climate and about the consequences of fast fashion and on the importance of a label as Nico was saying that might uh, say you know this pair of jeans is really fairly made this one is not so I'm gonna pay a little bit more to get the fair jeans so this is one side of the new generations but the other side of the new generations is the side that is very consumistic because it relies on social media for all its life, basically. So they are prone to buying fast fashion stuff on Chinese websites that sell clothes for two euros, and we have no idea where they come from. And despite journalistic work done on the matter, I'm not going to quote the name of the platform, but I think many uh, viewers are seeing what I mean. Um, well, despite journalistic work done on the matter, they don't change their habits. So I think it all traces back to globalization, to go back to the keyword used, uh, globalization that made us used to consuming in the way we do and mm. having production made so far away from our own countries, finally, not only damaging the people that actually work in the field, but also damaging our own industries in Europe. Before we go, it's the new British monarch's first visit to a Commonwealth nation since his crowning. And yes, there were, for instance, the tours of an elephant orphanage, uh, a snail farm, but there were also meetings with uh, Kenyan war veterans and a state banquet where King Charles acknowledged, quote, abhorrent and unjustifiable acts of violence committed against Kenyans during their struggle for independence. And for that, there can be no excuse. In coming back to Kenya, it matters greatly to me that I should deepen my own understanding of these wrongs and that I meet some of those whose lives and communities were so grievously affected. None of this can change the past, but by addressing our history with honesty and openness, we can perhaps demonstrate the strength of our friendship today. Uh, the Daily Beast spoke with Kenyans who wanted that full apology, though, he came closer to doing so than many had imagined he might, but seemed unwilling to go all the way or to open a conversation about reparations, as many campaigners uh, had uh, demanded. Uh, Nico Hines, uh, your uh, publication uh, uh, writes, uh, um, could he have gone further? Could he really have issued that full apology? Well, he certainly could have done. I mean, it seems as though the mandarins and the bean counters back in london are concerned that if uh, sorry king charles <laughs> if king charles were to issue a formal apology that that might have some uh, financial ramifications because um, the kenyans have been arguing that uh, well britain gave um, about 20 million pounds to the victims um, of the british rule from that uh, Mao Mao period um, to people who were tortured in some of the most horrific ways that we can't even discuss on this TV show. Um, we the Brit British gave about twenty million pounds in in reparations to, to those people, but the current government in Kenya is arg is arguing that that is nowhere near enough. That huge sums of money erode for 
um, reparations and to, to pay back the damage that was done. Uh, so London is concerned that they're going to face some almighty bill uh, if we formally admit and give an apology. But to be honest, I don't think there's any actual legal standing for that. And I would advocate for just Prince Charles. You could hear him talking there. Sorry, King Charles. You could hear him talking there. And genuinely, I think he does believe what he's saying. So I don't know why he has to be so timid and can't just outright come and say what he really means and what Britain should do, which is to apologise for these appalling acts that we have committed. And in Navarro Pedro, let's just go over quickly the scorecard. Uh, France, no apology for Algeria. Uh, we have had an apology from Belgium for uh, what happened uh, in what's now called the Democratic Republic of Congo. What, what about Portugal as well? I was going to ask you, what about Portugal President and its former this, African this year, President in April did uh, apologize for uh, colonization of Angola, Mozambique, of all the colonies in Africa. But he also said that apologies are not enough, that you have to assume afterwards, which means reparations, which means money. And you know, the apology, this apology is a political tool. And the question is the utility of using that political tool. And obviously, London uh, didn't think going to Kenya and go to a, f a full apology would be useful at this time. All right. We'll see if there are uh, uh, apologies or thanks. Uh, they broke up in 1970, but thanks to artificial <laughs> intelligence, the Beatles putting out a new single this week. Now and Then featured a polished version of an unfinished demo tape with the late John Lennon in part on vocals. Judah Grunstein, thumbs up or thumbs down? Well, I'll be honest, I'm of mixed emotions, but the audio did not come through on my end, so I did not hear it. I'm not quite sure yet whether I'm happy about that or not, uh, but obviously this isn't a Beatles song uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, uh, it's an interesting uh, project, uh, uh, you know, kind of novelty item. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I don't consider it a, a Beatles song uh, in, in, in any real way. Chiara Piotto? Well, actually, technically it is, meaning that they didn't recreate <laughs> through AI any voice that is not really recorded with the original Beatles voices or instrument that hasn't been recorded with the original Beatles. So we could say that it is, even though I know that the fact that AI was used to compose and recompose and mix, especially mix, the song has been caused a lot of debate online. Uh, what I find original is the way it was welcomed, this single. Of course, none of us felt the need of a new Beatles song because the Beatles times have passed and they're great and they're still with us every day in our uh, Spotify library. But at the same time, it's interesting what what was the the reaction of the new generations? Again, I, I'm going to talk about that because on Sky we published a video on TikTok about the topic and there were thousands and thousands and thousands of commentaries by the newest generation just enthusiastic about the fact that they would have the chance to live a time where a new Beatle. I still consider this interesting. Why are you making that frowny face, Anna Navarro Pedro? Um, yes, I, I totally hear the arguments, but I'm more with Judah. I, I really don't uh, don't buy into it. And um, 
you know, and, and the video seems quite creepy. Maybe we should have a label going <laughs> a bit farther uh, uh, up. Uh, we should have a label in the future saying this is generated by AI or compulsory when it is. Okay. Because it's going to get about very, very, Labels very on clothes, labels on songs. <laughs> uh, the songs released, by the way, happen to coincide with the UK Prime Minister hosting an AI safety uh, summit. I, I don't know if that was on purpose or not, Nico Hines. <laughs> I doubt they were that organised. Um, I think the Beatles and Peter Jackson have got much more power than the British Prime Minister, um, <laughs> which was evident this week as he was kind of simpering and sucking up to Elon Musk in an extremely undignified fashion. The idea that Elon Musk, you know, the owner of a kind of failed social media platform, should be welcome to London and then he should be interviewed by our Prime Minister as though he's the celebrity guest and and Rishi Sunak is a kind of wannabe podcaster. It was a, it was a rather tragic sight. <laughs> yeah, wait, wait, hold on, Nico. You're not getting off that easy. What do you think of the song? I'm, I'm down. Look, I think anything that brings people joy is great. There was, there was an amazing um, bit of footage of... Uh, there was a, a record store in Liverpool which opened at midnight. Um, so that just one minute past midnight this morning... Hundreds of Beatles fans, many of whom look like they've had the same haircut since the 1960s, uh, rushed in. Um, and the guy that got the first copy had actually, by Depole, changed his name to John Lennon and was clutching this record. And I thought, well, you know, if it's made these people that happy, then fantastic. All right. Well, we'll leave on a happy note. Nico Hines, I want to thank you for joining us from London. Judah Grunstein in uh, Newcastle. Chiara Piotto, Anna Navarro-Pedro, thank you for being with us here in the world this week. Your stories inspire the future. Your daily lives create the news. Your cultures, struggles and successes are at the heart of our programs. We tell the stories of those who made our planet and those who are building it. We tell the story of the world, shaped by the lives of those who live there. Liberté, égalité, actualité.